to this month's Silent Threat Briefing from Showcloud. As ever, I'm joined by Irena. Welcome to the episode. Thank you very much. And this week, we've got, or this month even, we've got a few things to discuss. Um, less less kind of like doomsday newsy on the months, but a few in there. But we, we picked a few topics out that we think are going to be a decent discussion point, ultimately. So you may have seen in the news over the past it's a couple of weeks that there seems to be a bit of an uptick in, in Australian cyber hacks or attacks on Australian companies that seem to be hitting the news. We're going to dig into that a little bit and talk around the reasons why that might be happening. We've also got a question here around, does age play a part in cybersecurity? So there's been a study done over the August period, which has a few interesting findings. So we're going to have a little bit of a, a deep dive into that and potentially might get into a bit of psychology while we're here. And then also there was the Microsoft League of Supplier slash Customer Details being commonly referred to as Blue Bleed. So we'll have a little deep dive into that and just find out what, what's going off there, you know, what can people do? And as ever, we'll try and give you some actual insights from this episode. So without further ado, let's go on with it. So Hugh, we'll pick up the Australian piece first, if that's okay with you. Just kind of for the listeners, can you just kind of give an explanation as to why we are discussing Australia, specifically on this threat briefing. So what, what's the reasons why we, we brought this to the, to, to, to the table? Yeah, so over the last few months, we've seen more and more reports of large Australian organisations being subject to cyber attacks. We've seen, you know, telcos, banks, you know, larger organisations that you'd almost consider part of the national infrastructure. And, you know, a lot of these methods that these, that these attackers are using to get into these organisations isn't, you know, overly sophisticated. So it, it just got me interested into you know why why we might be seeing this specifically uptick in Australia. We've seen Energy Australia, Optus, Medibank, the Australian Music Examination Board, and just today I think we've seen reports that Australian Clinical Labs, a medical company, had written you been subject to an attack earlier in the year. Uh, yeah, exactly. So we've got best part of seven companies, I think there, and um, some really big ones, some smaller ones, ultimately. And I guess, like you said, Hugh, there's been a pattern of pattern, but there's, there's been you know methods behind behind these attacks that are not hugely uncommon. You know, the things that we'd see anywhere really. So it's not like Australia itself as a region has been targeted with something specific. Perhaps it's therefore opportunistic. Um, I don't know. But in terms of the nature of those attacks, we've got unauthenticated APIs. One of them, we think, one of them is a ransomware gang. So it's been an indication that that's the case. One of them was related to using production data during a system upgrade and therefore then got left out there. One of them's around compromised credentials being given, you know, getting access to a to a CRM. One's around an XSS flow that was unpatched for quite a period of time. And the final one's around an account takeover attack. You know, these things are not necessarily out of the ordinary. We'll have talked around pretty much each one of these in previous episodes of this briefing, and you'll see, you have to Google the news, uh, look at the news, sorry, and you'll find something related to them, particularly ransomware, uh, would be fairly common. So. They don't appear to be anything out of the ordinary in terms of what we're seeing in other regions, I don't think. Do we think it's because there might be Australia considered part of the Western world? Do we think we just hear more about it? You know, it's happening in other regions as well, but necessarily, not necessarily hitting the news. What's your view on that one? I think that here in Europe and in North America, we are probably 10 or so years ahead, I think, really, of where Australia sort of currently sits in the cybersecurity space. I mean, I know for the longest time in Australia, just getting internet connections for some you know residential properties and businesses has been been a challenge so i think you know we're getting to the point where connectivity is more prevalent in australia but you know people are basically just lagging behind in some of these you know security practices 
obviously, if, if people aren't growing up with quick, fast internet connections, then you don't develop that interest. So you, you end up with fewer basically capable cybersecurity professionals, which obviously is going to have an impact. I mean, that that's all conjecture, right? But I wouldn't be surprised if that was partially the reason. But yeah, of course, you know, the reason we're, we're hearing more about that is because they're quite unique in the, in the Asia-Pacific region, in the first language is English, and they're a very westernized country, as you say. Yeah. Uh, let's not forget these things do happen here as well, and in, in Europe, for example. Um, that being said, I think Europe is one of the, the stronger, you know, continent regions that are kind of pushing the cybersecurity picture forward. You know, the regulations are pretty strong in, in that market. Maybe they're perhaps not quite as strong in, in Australia or Asia-Pacific region, perhaps, as, to an extent. So, Yes, I can see the reasons why. Maybe it's an opportunity exists there, perhaps there is a little bit of a lag behind. And, and I, I would stress that this is a bit more of a generalised view, not necessarily a specific, you know, I'm sure there are specific companies in, in Australia, particularly ones that operate in the security space that will be doing good things. You know, I'm aware of quite a few cybersecurity companies, for example, in Australia that I've you know, got quite a lot of admiration for and things like that. So I'm, I'm almost certain it will be a yeah, generalised view is it might just be a little bit behind where other regions would be, for example. And of course, threat actors are just going to target the the companies which are going to give us them the uh, easiest payoff for the least amount of work. So, you know, it makes sense that if they are slightly behind technologically, then um, that's where the efforts are going to be are going to be focused. Easier target, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Say. Um. So, I guess for the listeners, are there any specific key actions or insights that customers can take away today, particularly if they operate in Australia, or perhaps they've got supply chain or key members of the supply chain in in Australia? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's not really anything specific that you've got to do. It would just be a case of ensuring that due diligence and supplier onboarding and things like that is going to be the same across sort of global procedures. And, you know, every, everything that we don't normally suggest that you do in terms of things like threat modeling, testing activities are consistent. You know, it just seems to be that maybe in Australia, this is slower to happen. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I would just uh, yeah stress to people if you do have operations there or you you are sourcing work from there, just extra vigilance at the minute seems to be the way forward. Okay, perfect. So thank you for that, Hugh. Um, we'll move on to the next point. I'll have a little bit of a diatribe for a few minutes now. We'll just kind of lay out the picture for people, and then we'll have a few questions around it. So kind of saw in the news, so CSO online website they gave a a good commentary of a study that was done. Uh, so a study was performed by Ernest & Young uh, in the US around, and the topic was, how does age impact upon adherence and priority to cybersecurity? Age, you know, I guess, is a key factor in this picture, but the results were quite interesting. So the study showed that younger generations are, are more likely to disregard some cybersecurity concerns, and that kind of went against what I expected would have been the outcome from the study. For example, one of the findings was that disregarding security updates so when he comes on and says hey nick you need to update your machine today do i click immediately do it now or do i say actually remind me tomorrow well honestly i sometimes do it today if i've got time but sometimes i'll say do it tomorrow as well and i guess that's probably reflected in the findings here so age groups that disregarded security updates was 58 percent of generation z or z's i suppose if you're in the u.s 42% of millennials would disregard security updates, 31% of Generation X would, and then 15% of the baby boomer generation would disregard security updates. I'm surprised by that, if I'm honest. I thought that would be the, the inverse. I thought the, the younger generations would have been far more on it, I guess, in that respect. 
There were seventy-six uh, percent of works across all the generation did so they consider themselves knowledgeable in cybersecurity matters. Again, I'm quite surprised by that. I think that's a little higher than I, I would have anticipated. I guess my feeling of working in this industry for well, probably eight or ten years plus is that that's a little surprising. That so, you know, three quarters of people surveyed think that they've, they've got a good handle on it. I would suggest it's less than that. And then, I guess across all employee age groups, there were a number of other things that were, that jumped out as being quite interesting findings. So. 84% of people felt prepared to avoid cybersecurity mistakes at work. 35% felt prepared to avoid cybersecurity mistakes. 50% were very confident in how to use strong passwords and very confident being a keyword here. Uh, 43% were very confident about how to keep word devices up to date with cyber protection and so on and so forth, all the way down to 32% of people being very confident about how to encrypt their data. Again, I'm quite surprised by the numbers here, if I'm honest. I think that the, I expected they would have been low. And that might be reflected in the fact that the uh, the study was only across a thousand people in the US of ages 18 and upwards. So they give, kind of give a picture and obviously extrapolate that up across the, the populace. But Hugh, I just kind of want to get your thoughts here. You know, why do you think that is the case that we're finding these results the way that we found them? Yeah, so I think, you know, it certainly is interesting. I think, you know, it might be down to the, you know, the four stages of competence, right? We've got our unconscious incompetence, our conscious incompetence, our conscious competence, and our unconscious competence. And I think, you know, there, there might be a, a factor that we're seeing that these younger people are basically unconsciously incompetent, right? They think they're good. They think I've grown up with all this tech. I know how security works. I can just click X on, on my computer asking me to install an update because I'm not going to visit any dodgy websites. Whereas, you know, I think the older generation probably live in that conscious incompetence bracket a lot of the time. I don't really know, you know, how to best look after themselves in the security landscape, but, you know, they're aware of that and they accept that. And I think that level of comprehension that actually, I don't really know what's going on, things might be able to get me, is basically armour in itself in that, you know, you, you probably take more time to consider these things and, and do what the computer asks you when it asks you. Doesn't really explain those percentages with everyone feeling, you know, super confident that, that everything's good. But I think it could explain that that breakdown between younger and older users. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're quite right. There's an inherent trust from younger people around technology. They also grew up with it um, far more than older generations would have. So there is, there is an inherent trust there, I think. It's a question I would have now for you. Is, should organizations adopt a different approach if the average age of their workforce is younger or older? So let's say I'm, I'm Dave. Hi, Dave. And I, um, I own a, a factory down the road and I have some computers in there. And the average age of my workers is... 55, for example. And should I have a different approach to Steve down the road who's got a, a startup comprised mainly of 23-year-olds? It Should something be different now? Or should we be adopting the same approach across security? So in that example, I'd say yes, but probably not primarily down to the factor of age. Um, you know, if we're looking at a factory, which like you said, you know, manual labor, things like that might be sort of positioned towards the older end of the job market. People are using IT there to get a job done. It's an enabler. It's probably not the, you know, the primary function of their work. It's just something that has to be used, in which case the, you know, the awareness, the training, those sort of pieces for that is going to have to be very different and targeted differently to you know, a tech startup where the computers, the tech is the job. And obviously, you know, we're tending to see that security startups are um, you know, mainly staffed by those younger people. So I'd say... Yes, but probably not just for the reason of age. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, that's absolutely sure. 
I guess the next question and follow on from that, everyone wants to do an awareness program or knows that they should do an awareness program. Should that now be adopted differently? Again, again, I guess, does age play a part in how you adopt that? Or is it again back to use case? How are we using IT in these industries? Yeah, I think it is going to be a use case thing primarily, right? But people will respond differently depending on their age, you know, different life experiences, different analogs and comparisons that you could draw depending on the age of your audience. But I wouldn't say that it needs to be specifically built into your awareness and training plan, which obviously should be digestible and appropriate for everyone in the organization. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Final question on this one, Hugh. I guess common humans are commonly seen as the kind of weakest link towards an organization's security posture. That seems to be the fact, right? And, and I, my view is that I think the, we put a lot of pressure on people, employees, to kind of not click on the link or not do this, not do that. There might be a bit of finger pointing if that does happen. I think it's a lot of stress for to take on ultimately. But there are things that an organization can do to help reduce that impact of human risk if they do click on something is there a technical control in place or a, a series of procedures processes wherever it might be that we can put around people to kind of give them a kind of bubble wrap experience let's say in, in some cases yeah absolutely right so well the less user involvement we can have in security the better i think so yes we want our policy we want our process to tell people how how we'd like things to go down but when someone does inevitably you know click on that that link yeah, absolutely. We also want those technical controls there to just say, you know, hang on a minute, this domain's got a very low trust score. It was registered two days ago. The link doesn't look quite right. Let's not just blast on straight through to that website. So yeah, certainly I think it's a combination of both that we need, right? But again, going back to those stats and a comment in the chat from Christopher saying regarding only 32% of people or fewer than 32% of people confident on how to encrypt their data. That seems really low, right? But Christopher says, I'm the most technical person I know, and I don't know how to encrypt all my data because I use commodity cloud services. But that's a good thing, right? Because if we can design our environments and have our IT set up in a way that security runs without the user's input, that's fantastic. All of our machines are BitLockered. Do we have to go in and enable BitLocker encryption on them? No. It's just sent to us from IT with BitLocker encryption enabled. It runs in the background. Everything's encrypted. We don't have to get involved with that. So the fact that only 32% of people know how to encrypt their data is probably not as bad as it sounds because, you know, ideally, we shouldn't be relying on end users to manage that. That should be, you know, centrally managed and controlled as a function of IT. I'm probably going against, I'll contest that one. I think I'm surprised at 32. I think I thought it'd be more like, 10, 15, or something quite a little lower. And I think there's probably, uh, like you said, I think there's elements here where it's it's looked after for people in a lot of cases. But I came across the term a while back, frictionless security. So enabling security to be embedded without it being a, you know, an obvious thing that you need to opt in to do or a cumbersome process to make it a reality. Think about things like Apple iPhones, iOS, for example, there's a lot of security stuff baked in there that you don't necessarily notice You know, when you're paying for your stuff, it asks for the fingerprint. It's quite a seamless experience, and it's, that's what it means by frictionless. And I think there's probably an argument for frictionless security being baked into a lot of corporate environments now, corporate devices, that kind of stuff that will look after the things that you mentioned. I don't know if people would consciously know how to encrypt their data before. I, I don't think they would say, actually, you know what, let me download 7-Zip and zip it up, encrypt it with a password, text that password separately so it's out of band, and then send the data. I don't believe 30% of people a survey would be able to do that unless they went to i don't know some security companies or some high-tech companies and then asked them there it doesn't say what the thousand people 
the makeup of those thousand people were, unfortunately. But yeah, that's a good question from Chris. I do appreciate you sending that one in, Chris. Yeah, and I think, you know, aside from that example that you give of transferring data over email in an encrypted zip file, I can't think of too many examples of, you know, common user activities on a device, either at work or at home, that actively would need encryption, right? You set up BitLocker once, your machine's encrypted. You upload anything to OneDrive, Google Drive, anything like that, it's encrypted at rest there. I think you know we're we're doing quite well to move away from the world where users need to have that that you know constant involvement in ensuring that encryption. Yeah, you're quite right. Yeah, exactly. So stuff like encryption transit will be looked after by using by the virtue of using those services. Uh, ultimately, yeah, you're quite right. Okay, fantastic. Um, so the final questions or set of stuff that we're going to talk about today is the Microsoft disclosure or leak, or if you want to call it. Commonly referred to as blue bleed. So here, what's happened here? What how what's happened for this to become an issue? Yeah. So a common issue we see really is unencrypted cloud storage, whether that's uh, you know AWS buckets or Azure blobs. In this instance, this is your blob storage that's publicly accessible. I guess the key difference here, right, is that it was a Microsoft-owned blob storage that was holding the information for seems like commercial deals in progress and planning things like that so we were seeing you know emails between organizations that are looking to procure microsoft services obviously you know incredibly sensitive stuff some of those if it's in the email subject or or whatever yeah incredibly sensitive stuff and really one of the first things that you should ever be doing when you're looking at your your blob storage is making sure that you've got the access control set properly so yeah very surprising and um and not a good look for microsoft in this case no, I totally agree. And is Microsoft Azure storage, is that default unauthenticated or someone had to go out their way to, to enable that? So as far as I believe, when you're setting up a blob, it's a toggle. So it's either asks you whether you want it public or not. And there are certainly with AWS, you know, there are plenty of warnings if you do select to have that resource public. But yeah, you know, people spin things up really quickly maybe just tab through the options, whatever one's the first one that comes up gets selected, right? We do see it, you know, we advise clients and and normally it's something that's pretty quick to fix. But uh, yeah, embarrassing for Microsoft. But, you know, as soon as someone raised to them, they were pretty quick in getting that sorted, but not before everyone downloaded all the data they can find and posted it on Twitter. See, I've not seen it around yet. There's some interesting stuff in there, that's for sure. Interesting bunch of clients as well. I think it ranges from everything from government all the way down to small charity style companies and that kind of stuff and everything everything else in between so yeah it feels like everyone's been affected i, I saw a few posts on twitter so they've not necessarily responded to it particularly well and, and whatever else kind of almost swept under the carpet to a certain extent so i'm not a purchaser of microsoft stuff directly we would obviously do that centrally through the, through the business so i'm not aware of any communications that have come from that direction if we were infected or not uh, ultimately as well um, and of course like with all of these things right I think the impact reputationally is less on the incident and more on the response. And, you know, with Microsoft being slow to inform people that this has occurred and then not being helpful with what information was being held, what information has been leaked, I think, you know, that's potentially coming coming up worse for them than the actual issue in the first place. Mm, for sure. And it's 150,000 companies, right, that are allegedly affected. Yeah, about 150,000. I think it might have been 150,000 pieces of data more than 65,000 entities in you know, 111 countries dating from 2017 till August this year. So a good chunk of data 
and some of it highly useful to threat actors, you know, company security contacts, names, email addresses, phone numbers, all of that good stuff, as well as just, you know, highlighting who's using Microsoft security products. So you could be quite easy to then contact that person, phishing them, pretending to be from Microsoft. If you can list out the exact services that you know they've recently procured that you want to provide them assistance with, that is gold dust. Yeah, for sure. And obviously not just security related, but as well as an impact on if you're a competitor, for example, highly useful information to have, I would, I would suspect. Thank you, Hugh. That's really, really been useful. I guess we had one question. Is it mandatory to perform threat modeling in order to identify cyber risks? Uh, so do you want to take it? And then we'll have a discussion around it, if you like. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a big advocate of threat modeling. No one's got unlimited budget, right, in their security program. So as much as we'd like to test everything, deploy every tool, have everything assessed and approved, it's not feasible, right? So threat modeling is really useful there for working out what are the likely attack paths, what are your crown jewels, how is an attacker going to try and, and get that data so that you can you know, work on layering your defenses and your controls in those areas where they're going to provide you the most value and, and do the most work for you. Mandatory is a, is a strong word, right? We don't like to deal in absolutes, but you know, heavily advised. If you've just started a new charity and you've got £5,000 to spend, then probably blowing it all on a threat modeling exercise isn't, isn't going to be the best use of that. But you know, for larger organizations, I would certainly suggest that threat modeling is something that goes on. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Yeah, I don't think it's mandatory. I don't think you have to do it for everything. If you're doing a test of a product that's been tested plenty of times, you know a lot about it, maybe not. But if it's a new product that you bring to market or an organization as a whole, if you want to get to a higher level, then yeah, I think it's really well worth doing that threat modeling exercise so you can actually see, see the threat, the path, the attack path that might happen what the likely impact of it would be. And then what you can do then is tailor an assurance activity, whether that's testing, whether that's controls, assessment, whatever it might be, you can tailor that based on, on threat models, right? So you say, actually, this is my threat model. Let me have a look at what I might have in place. And then you can test accordingly. So as long as the two things are matched together, i.e. threat modeling first, rolled into an assurance activity, I think it's quite a powerful proposition. There's not a, there's not a lot of use in a threat model on its own and then not using the output that for that to then and inform the next stage uh, ultimately. But yeah, I think he's, he's definitely got a, a large part to play in the, in the direction of the industry, generally speaking, and the, and the things that you will start to see coming up in, in the future, I think. Absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, I think that concludes. I'll just check if we've got any final questions that have come in. We do not. So that's great. Thank you, everybody, for coming along, uh, sending the questions in. It's been a slightly different angle, I suppose, today on the previous months, but it's been a good one to talk through as well. And hopefully you got a few insights from it. So again, thank you everyone for coming along and we'll see you in a month's time.